I'm Howard Hecht. I'm Fred McClymans. And you are listening to The Coil. Welcome to today's Coil. We are going to be joined in a little while by an incredibly uh, erudite and uh, and just just brilliant researcher, Dr. Jeremy Pitt from Imperial College London, who has done some tremendous work on converting social capital, reinvigorating social capital, and and converting that into the realm of collective action. But before Jeremy joins us, Fred and I are going to have a discussion on converting social capital and converting all of the elements of uh, social capital and the collective social engagement from the analog to the digital space and what, if any, conversions are necessary to make that happen. Fred, great to have you with me today. Great to be here as well, Howard. How are things in Toronto? Excellent, excellent. Fred, let's jump right into it. I'm not convinced that there is a direct linear conversion for the things that we think of in the creation, distribution, dissemination of the elements of social capital from the analog world to their counterparts in the digital world. And I'm getting more and more convinced that we don't really have the metrics at this point to precisely measure the latter. Well, that, that's a good point, Howard. You know, I'm not sure that that, that really takes it far enough, though. Uh, you know, I think that uh, we certainly we don't have the the mechanisms in place to you know track the online to offline space as much as we would like. But I think more importantly, the online space is changing so rapidly that there are no best practices. You know, right now, you know, once you think you've nailed something, there's another twist in uh, in social. There's another twist in mobile. There's another twist, you know, somewhere that changes. Uh, the outlook, and maybe it's as simple as uh, you know Facebook changing an algorithm somewhere, or Google deciding, uh, you know, hey, we're going to rewrite the way uh, we do our search algorithms. But doesn't that mean we're focusing a little bit too small? Isn't our focus a bit too granular? I mean, if if we're thrown off by the way that a a single system just presents the data to us, or or even puts in a new category of data, or or correlates uh, two previously discrete elements into one single one. Aren't we, aren't we looking at the problem incorrectly if, if that throws off, throw off the whole way that we measure these things? We're in a position now where we can experiment tremendously um, with uh, you know, the, the, the amount of data that we have there. So you know, I think it's really more an issue of us being in a situation where we've got a, a number of things that we can look at. And right now we're trying to figure out what makes sense. But you know, consider this. You know, in the analog space, we had limited resources to actually track the uh, the behavior of uh, of an individual you know making a, a purchase decision or uh, you know making some type of a of a decision to do something in the analog world they may see an advertisement they may see a, a call to action somewhere uh, you know at a rally on tv on the radio how do we actually translate that into this individual taking a you know a, a step in the analog space well, you know, you, you put something out there and then you watch what happens to sales, what happens to engagement, what happens to conversations. Um, in the digital space, that happens much faster. We also now have a wealth of information that's coming uh, to us on individual behavior. So you know, it is theoretically possible to say, 
you know, Howard, you on this date saw this advertisement. You then took your mobile device, and we tracked your mobile device when you went five different places, ultimately ending up in this store here where you made a decision and you purchased this that we tracked through your credit card. And, uh, in fact, you used uh, your, your mobile pay uh, system through PayPal on your phone. You bought the device that we were just talking about uh, online, you know, five minutes earlier, five hours earlier. That's now possible. We just haven't figured out how to put all that together. Well, I think we're getting close to that. And I think that scares a lot of people, most notably me, because what happens is that puts us squarely into the realm of, of being able to deploy predictive analytics. So not only will I be able to see what you did, but I'll be able to put the little picket fence around and, and guide you uh, to the place I want you to go. I'm going to show them this ad based on this series of stimulus that I can I can throw up. And, and, you know, basically, um, you know, you're at the point now, Fred, where conceivably I can actually go into your smart building and raise your temperature three degrees to get you to pop downstairs to buy a Mountain Dew. You know, we talked about the, the good side uh, of this, and, and I'll put aside for a moment the idea that actually being able to track all that information is good because I know you'll disagree. And, and in many ways, I disagree as well. It can be abused. But think of that as the good side of being able to track influence through uh, through a market or through an opportunity. The bad side there is that once we do that, because we're so early on in the system, people will look at it and go, oh, this worked, without really understanding the mechanics behind why it worked. So we have a lot of data coming in, you know, advertisers, uh, people who are looking to influence a market or an action or a community will go, you know, we saw A that happened to B, C, D, E, F, and we got to G. Great. And they're going to try and replicate that. And it doesn't always translate because online is changing too rapidly. Right. So they're going to get empirical data and then they're going to go put their, their quants on the case to go and try to come up with a model. And the model is moving too fast is what you're saying. And I, I, I can see that. The thing that I'm concerned about, Fred, I guess is really not so much that one is good or bad, but it is the democratization of the access to that data. I mean, the data is derived from our actions, yet we do not have access to that data. Um, I don't think it's a level playing field. If, if only advertisers and, and those you know, that, that hold the data currently have access to it and are able to promote the influence to be able, be able to, uh, to guide us along those trends, then it's not really a level playing field. It really has to be something we need a, uh, you know, we need something that's more ubiquitous, more accessible to everyone. Well, look at it this way. If you gave everybody open access to that data, what would they really be getting? You know, the, the value isn't necessarily in the data itself. I mean, give the average person on the street the ability to look at the actual GPS signals that are coming out of their cell phone. They're not going to be able to do anything with that. You need an application that runs on top of that that actually connects the dots. Of course, that of course. provides context that, you know, does something of value. Well, that right there... That's not just data. That's somebody's proprietary algorithm. That's somebody's proprietary or software. Or is it an open algorithm? That's the th you know. The, the point I, is I don't. I don't think it's an open algorithm. I think you 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 can go to. It, it could be, but it, it's it's certainly not today. You could go to, um, you know, to a a vendor, to a a marketer, an advertiser, and say, share with us what you're making decisions on. But even there, these people are looking at so many discrete data points that they're not even getting it right. I don't think you can expect the average consumer to get I'm it right. Expecting the average, no, come on, Fred. I'm not. I'm not naive enough to say, "Hey, here's this raw data. You'll be able to do something with it." What I am saying is, is that there are a, a large group of people who are who are lined up to take this data 
to track you to sell you more soap. I mean, basically, their their mission in life is to sell you more of whatever it is they're selling. I think that either the data is going to have to be um, decided to belong to individuals by a competent court and ruled thusly, which is side one, and they're going to have to pay for access to that data, or side two, the data is going to have to be open, and there will be organizations, not-profit organizations like Electronic Freedom Foundation, others of that type, um, perhaps even the American Civil Liberties Union, who will actually stand up and promote open source data collection so that you'll have visibility into what is being seen about you. That's what I'm looking for here. That, I think, well, is something that's plausible. Oh, I, I believe that is plausible. You know, I think that you can uh, you can wrap your head around this uh, in terms of regulation, if you like, and say, you know, moving forward, the data that you collect will be available in an online database, and anybody can look at it, and they can actually go back and track where their cell phone was for the last month. And that's already happening. I mean, people are looking at, at that information and uh, they're starting to open up on it. But that's very different than somebody taking that information and then deciding, I'm going to string it together. I'm going to connect the dots. Uh, and here's the trend that we're seeing here. And, and the trend is higher organizations being able to connect more and more dots together to paint a complete picture of who you are and what you're doing. And reverse engineering that to go back and say, what influenced you to do this? And now let's go back out there into the realm of, of all the data that's available and see what, what happened there. That, that's the, the bigger issue that we're facing here is there are people who have the resources and actually have a desire to go back and track that. If you gave all the data to the individuals, I think that's a great thing. But they're never going to look at that data or use it the same way that an organization that's trying to market or understand market shifts is going to look at it. Well, and I'm not sure where I'm going with that point, but... <laughs> but I'm glad you got there. And before we go any further, let's actually go and take a moment and bring our guest, Dr. Jeremy Pitt from Imperial College London, in to talk to us about this very topic and how big data can be used to provide a collective awareness to be motivated and uh, manifested towards a collective social action. Dr. Jeremy Pitt joining us right after this. Jeremy, welcome to The Coil. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we've, Fred and I have both been spending some time uh, going over your research on social capital and the revitalization thereof. Let's do a quick level set. What is your definition of social capital? And I, and I really don't mean the academic version. I mean what it means to you and why should everyone care? So what it means to me is that um, working in a college uh, it is the uh, <clears throat> actions and uh, uh, value that is created um, uh, in a qualitative form uh, without necessarily having a monetary value. So there are different forms of social capital. Uh, those that you get from your standing within uh, a social group or an organization uh, the relationships that you have with your people in the social network uh, and the actual institution itself you know, as a set of rules which uh, people choose to regulate their behavior according to. Now, why is it important? It's because um, uh, without uh, social capital, it's difficult to create win-win situations 
which are a prerequisite for successful collective action. And uh, these days we are increasingly faced with this kind of problem at both a local and a global level. I always wonder if the win-win has become mythological at this point. I believe it's being forced that way because, at least in the UK, we're giving up various mechanisms which we used to do, used to employ for decision support. One of them was um, what we might call learnedness or wisdom that came from academia. And in the UK, that's largely being replaced by celebrity culture. There's another pillar of decision support based on democracy and a third one based um, purely on the market, which was perfectly reasonable. That contained transactional information. But we seem to have uh, given up on um, learnedness, the wisdom that comes from uh, experience and from evidence and from uh, <coughs> the scientific method. We are undermining our uh, democratic uh, methods. Uh, we no longer do evidence-based policymaking, for example, and we're diminishing the amount of participation of citizens in the democratic process. Uh, and we're left entirely with um, what we might call uh, a market state. So I think what I've been impressed with when I go over the UK politics is the, is the incredible capacity to redefine the win. So, you know, the, the win is obvious, but, you know, after, after the, uh, you know, the, the other win is, is being redefined on a, on a very dynamic and creative It seems basis. at this point the only win is Essex. For that. Um, yes, I mean this is this is this is celebrity culture. Yes, yes. I think this is um, why uh, this is coming interesting to us um, uh, in a in a technological sense uh, is because um, uh, we believe that uh, uh, as we increasingly instrument uh, our society, we're going to have sort of little societies of sensors and devices and uh, processes uh, alongside the social network of people, uh, and that we want to uh, join these things together uh, in such a way as to um, uh, provide a platform on which people can uh, build their own applications for uh, social networking and without necessarily having their data scraped by... Uh, shall we say, some of the uh, larger uh, organizations uh, who are using it for uh, their own corporate ends. So, Jeremy, uh, in, uh, in one, of your, uh, one of your papers, you talk about creeping managerialism. And, right. uh, you, you know, that's an, that's an interesting phrase. I would love for you to kind of, again, put that in, in perspective uh, from your from your provide some context on that from your perspective. Um, but then if you think about that, and if I interpret that right, we, we've got sort of a, a conflict here because a lot of decisions are now made based on the volumes of data that we have available to us. Uh, you know, political decisions, media, shopping, the works. Um, so can you put some scope around creeping managerialism and, and what it really means to us? Um, okay, I'll, I'll try and answer that. Uh, uh, there's, there's two parts to that. So, so the first thing, uh, is the creeping managerialism is sort of like undermining the notion of professionalism. Uh, so uh, 
I can only really base this uh, on my own experience uh, as an academic. But in the UK, uh, there seems to be an increasing uh, desire to try and measure the quality of performance uh, using extremely arbitrary metrics. Uh, uh, if I may make so bold, um, I, I refer to this as the McKinseyization of professional life, Ooh. where, yeah, well, you can edit that one out. Of course. No, I, I want to, um, I'm going to highlight it. It's, it's going to be, we're going to have you say it again so we can use it in the promo reel. It's actually, it's a great, it's a great sentiment, a great clip. Say it again, say it again. The McKinseyization of professional life. Uh, and the problem is this, that um, there's this unofficial McKinsey motto, at least I have heard, that um, uh, everything can be measured, and if it can be measured, then it can be managed. And uh, there's a problem if you try to measure um, things which are of a purely qualitative sense. Uh, and if you try to put metrics on this, then, of course, actually people uh, change their behavior uh, according to the metrics, and you don't necessarily have uh, a measure of quality. So this is something that we're experiencing in uh, the UK with our uh, research evaluation framework, uh, and some quite uh, arbitrary metrics to decide on whether people are internationally leading, nationally leading, and so on. Uh, what this also means is that um, uh, by the creeping managerialism, that uh, there's a bureaucratic centre uh, which seeks to evaluate everybody's performance with respect to these arbitrary criteria. Uh, and the trouble is there's um, uh, something from economics known as Goodhart's Law, you know, which says that uh, uh, any metric which becomes a target ceases to carry any semantic value. And that's precisely what's happening uh, with these notional measures of quality, that uh, when people understand that these metrics are targets, they change their behavior to suit the target. And of course, you then no longer have any content by which to make a meaningful assessment by. So Jeremy, doesn't that change uh, a bit how we would calculate or value social capital? Well, this is uh, this is this is my my point that actually one of the things that we have to do is is to reinvent forms of uh, social capital because um, one of the things that happens is as people change their behaviour and these things become targets, uh, they actually become monetized in themselves, and then don't have any any real value. I mean, the same, in my opinion, happens with uh, the notion of um, social concepts like like friendship. I mean, in my day, you know, a friend was someone who I could count on, not necessarily uh, a number of people that I could count up, uh, and more to the point, not I could uh, aggregate them and then sell them uh, if I had a lot of followers on a Twitter account or a Facebook account uh, to somebody who was willing to pay to advertise these people. And this is also a betrayal of uh, a notion of trust. <clears throat> Excuse me. These people followed uh, me uh, because they were interested in perhaps what I had to say and not because I was going to sell them out to uh, a commercial force who was going to uh, uh, mass advertise to them. Jeremy, when we talk about the idea of trying to translate social capital into social currency, I think that that's something that uh, that individuals and businesses are are really struggling with today. 
they're trying to find a way to uh, do things such as identify influential people, influence in this case being somewhat analogous to social currency and uh, or social capital, uh, and then turn that into currency, to monetize it, to find a way to leverage the, the value that that person has, the trustworthiness that they have, or in many cases, it may not be trust, but it may simply be the ability to move a market or to sway a crowd uh, into making a decision that's favorable. I mean, do you see that? Um, uh, I do see that, and uh, I agree with you. And um, uh, I have a, a friend and a colleague uh, who works for BBN. Um, I'll name and shame him. Uh, it's Jake Beale, because we, we, we've discussed this. And... Um, uh, we've been calling this Beale's thesis, uh, so that's why I name him. Uh, it's because his uh, question to me when I mentioned this was, uh, is it the case that any form of uh, social capital which has, uh, uh, in the real world, let me say, uh, just a purely qualitative uh, and non-corporeal existence, um, if it's translated into the digital world, uh, and so that we have some way of instrumenting our digital environment so that we can measure this social capital, is it inevitable that it will become commodified and turned into some kind of social currency uh, with the result that you would lose the potential win-win situations that you actually get out of uh, social capital? Uh, I'm not sure that completely answers your, your question, but I mean... Uh, it's certainly things, you know, that from a commercial point of view, if you're simply trying to maximize profit, uh, this is quite a depressing prospect for, for, for social capital. That's, that there is, uh, you know, if people like me say uh, we have to reinvent social capital because that's the only way of restoring the trust, which will enable us uh, to perform successful collective action uh, and yet it is simply inevitable that this social capital will be turned into commodified forms, uh, then, then the prospects for uh, using socio-technical systems for successful collective action uh, is much diminished. The latest uh, scourge of, of the city in, in London is the uh, is going after the foreign exchange trade, um, and it's it's long overdue. Let's face it; that's been that's been one where there's just been egregious successes for you know since since they you know since they floated foreign currencies. Um, do you think that there is a global movement to morph social capital into social currency? Um, I don't know if it's uh, an intended uh, um, uh, global movement. Um, I will say London is a bit of an exception because we're frank. Well, London is a reserve currency with um, nice restaurants attached. I mean, that, that's, the, that's, that, that's the way uh, it's, uh, it's going. It's, it's particularly unique uh, uh, flavor as a city. Uh, however, there uh, is an increasing tendency, uh, not tendency. I mean, technologically speaking, to to develop digital currencies, uh, and I think this is going to be uh, one of the major innovations in uh, social, cultural, and economic uh, behaviour that we're going to see over the next ten ten years. Uh, and one of the interesting things 
um, that I'd like to spend my time working at is studying the relationship between uh, digital currencies uh, and uh, social capital. Uh, and in a sense, well, that also uh, has implications for, for the nature of the nation state, uh, for how you might do taxation, uh, certainly how you might um, uh, self-organize local communities and so on. Major thanks to our guest, Dr. Jeremy Pitt, my co-host, Fred McClymans, and to you for joining us on this episode of The Coil. Please join us next time when we continue our talk with Dr. Pitt on the subject of trustworthiness as the linchpin for social capital. For more information about the show, please check out our website at thecoilradio.com or follow us on Twitter at The Coil Radio. Archived episodes of The Coil can be found on SoundCloud or iTunes.